Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. The sound of endurance racing around the world. This is RS1, part of the Radio Show Limited Network. Hello everyone, Richard Crowe here and welcome to On The Grid, a weekly in-depth look at the Australian motorsport scene here on the Radio Show Limited network of channels. On The Grid covers everything from supercars to S5000, TCR to Australian GT and a whole heap more. Weekly spread of interviews, news, views and opinion on what makes the sport tick down under. We'd love to have you involved as well. If you've got any questions about Antipodean Racing, drop us a line on the socials by using at the Racetalk on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, and we'll include your question in the next show. So that's it from me. Grab a beer, put a snag on the Barbie, fire up some Bathurst on the TV, and crank up your V8 and enjoy an Aussie look at our great sport. And let's welcome the show's host with the most, the voice of the Melbourne Cricket Ground as well, is Tony Shebecki. G'day everyone and welcome to On The Grid, powered by theracetalk.com and heard via my podcasthouse.com and the Radio Show Limited's radiolemon.co on RS1. What an amazing week it's been here in Australia in motor racing and all the focus was around the Australian Grand Prix and the cancellation of Formula One and all the support events. Richard Crowell and Dale Rogers will join me shortly to discuss the ramifications of COVID-19 to motorsport here in Australia and right around the world. We'll also be joined by Cameron Hill, who was the only race winner at Albert Park, winning race one of the Porsche Pace Carrera Cup Australia Series. Stephen Grove also with him as well as a race winner. And we'll have a chat to someone who was out there in the crowd and lived it and found out exactly what it was like to be a member of the public, just as they announced the cancellation of the Grand Prix. Brian Vanderwacker to join us a little bit later on. But first, let's relive the news and hear from the people that made it. Speculation was rife on Thursday night and Friday morning that the Australian Grand Prix would be cancelled. And at 10 o'clock, the words the public didn't want to hear were made loud and clear. AGPC has been advised by Formula One of the cancellation of the race. The Australian Formula One Grand Prix has been cancelled. Thank you very much for your understanding in this situation. I repeat, the AGPC has been informed by Formula One of the cancellation of the race. We appreciate your understanding in this situation. Thank you very much. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews, an hour earlier, giving the organisers an ultimatum. They've got a choice to make between running no event or running an event without spectators. Australian Grand Prix Chairman Paul Little felt sorry for the fans. The health and safety and welfare of teams and uh, people, uh, the community generally, has to take precedence. Just want to say sorry to our fans. Meanwhile, there was a lot of speculation on the decision getting to the Friday and whether it should have been made earlier. F1 General Manager of Motorsport, Ross Braun, said all the advice up to the cancellation pointed to the race being run. Great race, great fans, wonderful weekend, huge enthusiasm here. We have a big impact on the economy here and we have an impact on our economy. I mean, Formula One has to function. 
you know, we have to make it work. So we looked at the whole situation and when we decided to go ahead, it looked a bit different to how it looks now. And I think probably what's surprised everybody is the rapid expansion of this problem. Um, you know, the escalation of cases, certainly in countries like Italy, where you know, it's gone almost vertical in terms of no one, I think, could have expected or predicted that. You know, I spoke with um, Mattia Bonotto at Ferrari many times over the past few weeks. And you know, his, his mood changed in the last five, seven days with what he was seeing in Italy and what we had to look at in Italy. So we were kind of on this um, ship that had sailed and we were uh, optimistic that we could get through it and we could get Form 1 started and we can have a great race and just bring a bit of relief in difficult times. CEO of the F1 Group, Chase Carey, believes the right decision was made in the end. I think we made the right decision, you know, as, as it evolved. I think we, you know, feel we worked well with all of our partners to make that decision. Obviously, we don't control how various events um, evolve, um, specifically, I guess, some of the, the infection that was determined here and some of the illnesses. Um, I think we felt we made the right decision when we moved here. Um, again, in hindsight, you're always going to look at things differently, so it's difficult to go back and, you know, look at it moving forward, um, you know, in many places around the world, um, clearly the situation in just 24, 48 hours is very different um, than it was, you know, you know, not that long ago. I mean, people were traveling between the Europe and the United States. You know, 24 hours, they're no longer traveling between those countries. Um, so I think these are issues that you sort of have to deal with, you know, real time, make efficient and effective decisions, um, and, uh, you know, try and make sure you're getting all the input and expertise you can um, to, to do the right thing. I think we got to the right place. Here. Grand Prix Chairman Paul Little says the call was made at the earliest it could be, and while they would have liked to inform the fans earlier than 10 o'clock on Friday, their hands were tied. So, could the fans have found out earlier? Yeah, look, uh, I think the answer is no. Um, we're very conscious of our responsibility to the fans. We knew they were trying to get through the gate. We were still taking advice from um, the medical officers uh, and that was, um, you know, up until around uh, nine o'clock-ish. Um, I think uh, we understood this um, uh, concern was out there, but uh, we really needed to um, speak to Formula One, FIA again this morning. We had discussions through until about 2.30 this morning. Uh, we uh, reinvigorated those discussions early this morning and the final conclusion was reached when the press release went out and our fans at the gates were told accordingly. Ross Braun says the decision will hurt everyone financially. Well, there's the economics for the teams. I mean, you know, the teams survive on their, their uh, funding from races. Um, yeah, so this will have an impact on the team's budgets for the future. Um, so it'll have an impact on our economics as a company. So, you know, each race you lose, then it has an impact. So, um, but, you know, uh, we've, there's quite a strong resilience in Formula 1. I mean, we used to, you know, fair degree cutting our cloth to suit. And uh, I think there's a fair resilience in Formula 1. And we've got plans to rebuild the season, trying to accommodate as many of the lost races, because I think people have to 
have to show some tolerance now in terms of how we build the season for the rest of the year. And I think the teams are in the right place to realise that's necessary. S5000 was on the cards at the Australian Grand Prix and James Golding will be credited as the first person to hold a pole position in an S5000 car at Albert Park. Golding says it was good to be driving the S5000 on a GP track. Oh yeah, unbelievable. Um, yeah, a lot different track to the practice, so had to go about it a bit of a different way, keep an open mind and obviously that red flag early. Um, you know, we... We just got to the front of the pit lane and focused on getting laps out rather than making a change to the car. I was pretty comfortable with it and um, it just goes to show. Awesome start to this weekend and, and also to the year. Cameron Hill was the only race winner over the weekend at Albert Park, taking out the 45-minute endurance race for the Porsche Pace Carrera Cup. Hill says 45 minutes in a Carrera Cup car is a tough gig. That was a tough race. Those 45-minute endurance races, you know, you've got to be on your game. You, know, you can't make any mistakes. And so um, I was a bit fortunate, you know, Dale ran wide and I slid into the lead. And from there, you know, I just wanted to hit my marks and, you know, make sure they couldn't touch me. More from Cameron Hill later in the show. Stephen Grove taking out the Pro-Am category. Grove saying he had a heap of fun in the race. For me, I didn't know whether to keep watching the pros in front because that was bloody entertaining. <laughs> or watch the AMs behind me because they were coming too. So there was so much going on. And, and the pace was good all the way down and the other primes were quite quick as well. So what, what a race. Well, that's all the news from the week in motorsport. Let's have a chat about it. We are joined on the grid by a man whose, well, track record will go down in a little bit of history when he looks back on his career in the Porsche Pace Carrera Cup Australia because by winning just one race, he also won round two of the championship at Albert Park, the shortened weekend that we'll talk about at length in the show. I'm joined on the line by the most recent round winner in Carrera Cup, Cameron Hill. G'day, Cameron. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Cheers. Um, interesting times in the motorsport world, Cam. How do you reflect on uh, almost a week out from what was a pretty eventful Thursday for you last week? Yeah, it feels like um, it was a long time ago, but it really wasn't. Um, yeah, what a what a week we've had. Um, you know, we were heading down to Melbourne to to go about our business in round two of the championship and we were packing up Friday morning and heading home with a trophy apparently so um, yeah really weird circumstances. So you're the first driver in series history to win a round by winning just the one race it's never been done before it's an interesting little footnote I suppose in the record books of the championship let's talk about the on track stuff first before we get on to all the ramifications Mm. of what's going on in the world because you qualified well uh, you started well. Dale Wood had a puncture on the opening lap and tripped up. But then you had to spend 19 laps and a huge amount of pressure fending off a very, very racy field. Just talk me through that pressure and the kind of heat you were feeling in that race. Yeah, it was um, another one of those 45-minute endurance races. Um, the only time, only races I've won so far seem to be the long ones. So uh, must must be a common theme, which is cool. But... Um, yeah, we we had a had a really great day. You know, we we in practice we were focusing on getting the car sorted for qualifying, and then um, you know we got qualifying really right. Um, you know, I was really happy to be on the front row. You know, I've I've been in the, the position where you're chasing. Uh, it's very hard to overtake, and you know, being the car behind, you, you're swallowing all that hot air. And I just thought oh, if I can just keep my uh, put my head down, uh, make no mistakes, I reckon I'll be able to start to shake the pressure, and uh, I managed to do that, which was good. Yeah, and it was huge pressure, wasn't it, from an immensely competitive field. And Carrera Cup's never not competitive, but, man, this year's wide open, isn't it? There's 
there's probably 10 cars that look on paper to be race winners any given weekend. Yeah, it's um, it's super competitive uh, this year, you know, and that's why qualifying and track position is so, so, so important to um, to the whole weekend um, because I, I do feel like there's probably six or seven guys that if they put it on the front row, you know, they're, they're going to they're gonna have a good chance of winning. So, um, yeah, it was really important to, to qualify well and, and then capitalise on, on that position for the race. Just talk about the progress your team's made because for those who might not follow the championship, you're a single-car outfit, you're, you're running it yourself from the family workshop, you're going up against the likes of McElroy Racing and Sonic Motorsport who have got multiple cars, all the data, all the gurus, all the experience and all the success... Um, it, it must be immensely satisfying to take these guys on at their own game and when the opportunity presents, beat them as well. Yeah, it, it is immensely satisfying when when you, you have success. It's also immensely frustrating when you're banging your head against the wall sometimes <laughs> going, what are we doing wrong? Um, and so it's been um, it's long, been a long time coming. You know, the, the first year we were sort of out in the wilderness. You know, we really were very green and didn't know a lot so um we learned quite a lot in that first year and then and we thought oh yeah now that now that we've done that the second year is going to be good and to be honest we probably learned just as much in the second year um you know having the, the technical link up with gwr definitely helped um working with an engineer for the first time in my career mm-hmm. um and yeah i think we just finally we collected a lot of pieces of the puzzle last year there were rounds where we were strong there were rounds where we weren't strong and so then we went, okay, well, now we need to make sure everywhere we go this year, we just improve. Um, and, you know, Adelaide, I felt like, you know, we were right on the pace there. And the Grand Prix was not around. We were strong last year. And, um, you know, we really managed to capitalise on, on everything that we've learnt on. What, what's the goal this year? I mean, third year in the category. Are you, are you now feeling like you're a legitimate championship contender and can, can contend for this thing? I suppose, answering my own question, you proved that last week. Yeah, I mean, there's no secret that was the goal coming into this year. Uh, we wanted to win the championship this year. Uh, I wanted to try, you know, win the Michelin Junior Program. So that's our goal for 2020. Um, you know, there, there's some stiff competition, but uh, I feel like we're finally at that point now where, you know, we are capable of, you know, being competitive for race wins um, week in, week out. You won a race at Darwin last year and qualified well. Does that weekend, when you look back on it, feel like it was a turning point for you guys? Uh, for sure. It was It was sort of relieving to, to see the work pay off. Um, you know, it was one of those cases of last year where we did get it all right. You know, the car was fast out of the truck and, you know, you get your tyre pressures right and, you know, you get good starts. And and that's what it takes to, to win a, a weekend in, in Carrera Cup. You know, you have to get all your ducks in a row. Mm. Um, and we didn't quite do that at a few other rounds last year, but you know that's really been the focus, and you know, I think we've learnt a lot um, from all those times we didn't get it right. Um, some obvious challenges coming up in the motorsport industry, and, and you're probably well placed to talk about that. We all know what's going on in the world. We all know that we're basically pushing pause on our sport alongside every other sport for at least a month. It looks like, if not longer. Um, Carrera Cup was due a three-month break anyway because our next round isn't scheduled until uh, Townsville, which is in late mm. June. So that might actually work to the series' advantage. But as a, a small race team and a small business, how are you positioned coming into what's, I think, going to be a pretty challenging time for everyone in our game over the next couple of months? 
Yeah, look, it's it's a little bit scary, you know, being a small business that's in the motorsport industry. You, you sort of look at it, and if, if everything stops, um, that's going to make it very hard for you to, to continue functioning as a business. Um, you know, we, we've just had confirmation that uh, the first round of the Australian Formula Ford series is um, cancelled, so unfortunately, you know, we've been preparing for that with our two young drivers, and, you know, they're... They're going to have to wait a little bit longer before they, they turn their first wheels in anger. Um, Bathurst six hour, we don't know what's going to happen there. We, we're, we're prepping a car for that as well. You know, we we're, we're sort of carrying on as normal. You know, we've still got a, a few things that are keeping us busy for now. But um, yeah, it could get scarily quiet very soon. Are you, are you placed to to weather it? Like, do you have in your mind a, a time frame of three months, six months? What what's the vibe? as far as that goes at the moment? Yeah, I mean, fingers crossed, um, you know, the, the storm does pass shortly. I I feel like, you know, if it only goes on for, for three months or, you know, maybe worst case six months, mm. you know, we could, you can probably take that on board. Um, but, you know, if you if you lost a whole season uh, worth of racing, um, that would, yeah, it would, it would probably even influence, you know, my career cut program, you know, sponsors... You know, obviously, you're not going to be able to give them any value, um, so um, you're not going to have any income from that either. So, um, very quickly, you sort of you just have to look at, you know, the bare essentials. You know, um, going to the, the supermarket and getting pasta and toilet paper, I guess, <laughs> which is proving challenging in its own right in this exactly. day. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mate, I'm sure it'll uh, it'll bounce back. You're not the only one in that in that position. So we're all. Uh, we're all sitting mm. on the edge waiting to see what um, what goes on. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit positive, though, because uh, you mentioned Formula Ford, and that's been a big part of your history. You're an Australian Formula Ford champion. That category just keeps on delivering, doesn't it? And, and no matter what goes on behind the scenes and the politics of our game, Formula Ford just keeps developing young drivers and, and finding this next generation of racing talent, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic category for that. You know, I... Um... I really enjoyed my time racing, and and really, that, but gave me the the base to to move up in my career. You know, so much of what we know now was learnt back then. Um, you know, my dad and I just sort of spannering the car ourselves, and and you know now to be working with um, young guys like Tom Sargent and Noah Sands in in the national series this year, um, it's really exciting to see how their careers are progressing and. Um, it's you know I really hope that you know it's a category that continues to to go strongly for a number of years to come and you know we can stay involved. I'm sure it will, mate. Uh, congratulations on your unique weekend at Albert Park with the pace you had in that race and the way you managed, especially that late race restart, which I reckon might have been a bit stressful for you. Uh, <laughs> I th- yep. You had um, you had some serious speed, my friend, and uh, really good performance. And I'm sure you would have gone on to win all four races and the round overall, whether it was shortened or not. So congrats on that. Uh, I hope very much that we can see you on track at Townsville as scheduled in July and well done on last weekend. And fingers crossed it all gets back on track for you guys very soon. Yeah, cheers. Thanks. Well, great to hear from Cameron Kill, who won basically the only race at the Formula One Rolex Australian Grand Prix. What a crazy weekend. It's time to break it all down and work out what exactly it was that happened and perhaps more importantly what is still to come with that we welcome back to the program after the very exciting news segment at the start of the show tony shebeki g'day shebekster 
Ah, uh, Krause, good to be back, mate. Uh, you sorted out your issues with Vic Health? Uh, yeah, with Vic Rhodes. Vic Rhodes, yes. Uh, no, Vic, Vic Health, I don't think I have anything on me just yet. Okay. But uh, no, definitely uh, my licence status is now current. Right. There's... So uh, we're back driving. There's a long story about that, folks, and to check it out, head to theracetalk.com and read the Grand Prix Power Rankings. Uh, it makes a hard not uh, appearance of that. We're also joined from our Melbourne studios by a man who's probably happy the AFL season might not even get underway because he goes for Melbourne. We're talking about Dale Rogers. Hello, Dale. Hello, Richard and Tony. How are you? I was actually surprised that Chase Carey, in that in that press conference, Tony didn't reference your eels as well as the Grand Prix eels, to be honest with you. Yes, I, I would have thought that my eels were just as big as Lewis Hamilton's burnouts yeah. a few years ago. Yeah. I agree. I totally agree. <laughs> uh, we've got a, a special guest on the line as well, and we welcome him to the conversation because we're going to break down what went on at Albert Park on Thursday and Friday, one of the more extraordinary days any of us have witnessed at a racetrack. And we're joined by... Fox Sports News journalist and a man who was actually at the track as a race fan, so he's well-placed to tell us exactly what happened. We're joined by Brian Vanderwacker, a friend of the show. Welcome to the show, Brian. Um, must have been a fairly crazy old day, Friday the 13th, uh, 2020. <laughs> was it ever, was it ever. Gentlemen, great to be on the program. I am an avid listener and do love the... Uh, do love the location updates of where you might be throughout the course of a race weekend. I was planning on trying to get along on the uh, course of the weekend, but as we know, unfortunately, things uh, took a bit of a turn for the worse. But um, it was quite a crazy weekend, and uh, I had a group of about five of us that was going um, to, to the Grand Prix, and I even woke up on Friday morning and I said, look, we have no idea what's going to happen today. Whatever does happen... I'm sure it's going to be a day that we'll remember for the rest of our lives, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, first off, it, things started feeling a little bit eerie even as early as Wednesday because the announcement came out that, obviously, the Melbourne Walk is just fantastic. We all love it as fans at, uh, at the Grand Prix. You know, the drivers can sign autographs and get selfies and all that. Well, it was announced on Wednesday that the drivers weren't even going to be signing autographs um, on the Melbourne Walk, so already that takes a little bit of the um, of the experience away, I guess, for a fan, and then... Thursday played out pretty well normal, uh, you know, as we were all there enjoying some supercars action and Carrera Cup and things like that. And then at about quarter past 10, 10.30 on Thursday night, just as we were all sort of going to bed, we got news that McLaren pulled out, and that's where we thought, oh, no, this is going to take a, a really big turn for the West. I had a shocking night's sleep on that Thursday night. I think I, uh, I think I woke up every hour trying to get the updates on social media and things like that. And then, um, obviously, we... Got up, got the latest news and, and sort of said, all right, well, let's head to the track on, on Friday morning. We got there at about 9 o'clock and there was a big line-up through gate number one. We, we obviously got word that they weren't letting people in. Um, so that was, you know, so-so. We'll play the waiting game and see what happens. But as we were standing there in the line, as I think most people were, we were sort of getting the updates via social media. We were watching Daniel Andrews' press conference happening and, and, and obviously the announcement that there would be no spectators in the uh, in the venue for that weekend, and then ultimately um, we saw the breaking news come through in the FIA statement. And shortly after, um, there was a gentleman there from one of the volunteers that had his mega microphone out and um, unfortunately broke the news to everyone that the event was going to be cancelled. So that was disappointing. And there was a few TV cameras there and, and things like that. Um, there was a few boos from some of the fans, but I think that was probably more just a bit of a beat up for the 
the TV cameras and things like that. Other than that, really, you've got to actually say that the reaction from the fans was actually quite good. There wasn't too much commotion, and I think everyone sort of understood the decision. Just uh, we'll get to the boys in a second. I'm just interested on your your approach. You're a journo for Fox Sports News, uh, but you were there as a fan. Did you have your news gathering hat on? <laughs> It was funny, actually, because um, one of my fellow colleagues, our Melbourne reporter, Drew Jones, was actually doing live crosses from Gate 1 where we were. So I hadn't actually met him before. So I went to introduce myself and we got talking. We were exchanging um, details that we both knew throughout the course of the morning, so much so. It actually got to a point where I think one of the spectators sort of saw that we both knew what was going on and, and mm. she came up to me and she goes, oh, hello, I'm just you know trying to get some more information. You seem to know what's going on and things like that. And I said, yeah, what can I help you with? And she goes, well, we've just come from a cruise. Um, we've spent two weeks on a cruise. We extended our holidays by a week to come to the Australian Grand Prix. And I said, where are you coming from? And they said, England. Oh. I said, oh, boy, it doesn't look good. And I, I broke the news to them. I said, look, if at this point, this is what I said to her. I said, look, what we know at the moment is that if the event goes ahead, it will go ahead behind closed doors, which means spectators aren't let in. That's if it goes ahead at all. And obviously about 20 minutes later, the event didn't go ahead. So, I mean, you know, for us, I mean, I travelled from Sydney and all that, and, you know, there was a heap of Australians there, obviously, but you've got to really feel for those um, people that have travelled from overseas and things like that. We had a family behind us that travelled from the UK as well, so there was a lot of overseas travellers for, for this year's event. Brian, there seemed to be general anger from the punters when the man with the megaphone came out there was a bit of swearing and the like that uh, sort of conversed over his voice it was, why was the anger there was it was it just through disappointment or were people generally really annoyed that it had taken so long for the decision to be made i think it was i think it was just general disappointment you know and, and heat of the moment you know you you know what it's like if when when you get told something in the heat of the moment when you stand there at the gate and you have been since you know at am you're always going to be angered and and things like that i think for and i use this term you know quite lightly for for those that had might have been a bit more educated on what had gone on the event really was on shaky ground as we all know for at least you know up to 2 weeks really since they left testing at barcelona so for some of us, it didn't come as a real shock. I think for those that hadn't really kept up to date what, with what was going on throughout the two weeks, it probably came as a bit of a shock to them. But from my eyes, like I said, I think the initial reaction, there was a few boos, there was a few bits of colourful language. But again, I think that was all a little bit built up, particularly at Gate 1, because that's where all the TV cameras were. So I think everyone wanted to get their face on TV and things like that and try to play it up for the cameras. Mm. Once the cameras had left and things like that, the crowd left quite quickly, and even around the streets of Melbourne, things like that, during the weekend, you know, everyone was actually quite easy going, and everyone got on. And, and from what I saw, I mean, I even went out to Phillip Island on the Grand Prix track on Saturday. There was heaps of F1 fans out there having a wow of a time. So I think, yeah, again, the first few minutes that passed through, everyone was a bit angered. But from then on, I've, I've got to personally say that I think the reaction from the fans was actually quite good. Brian, do you think that the, 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 there was, although people had turned up on Friday morning and, uh, you know, the, the gates were opening late because obviously it's a, it's a now late morning and afternoon event, do you think a lot of the, the punters that actually turned up there and you, you were in that crowd were sort of thinking that, look, we're here and it may happen, that, that you know, it'll be a bit of a bonus if it does? Yeah, and we sort of got that feeling, like I said, when we sort of left our apartment building on Friday morning, I said to the guys, I said, look, you know, who knows what we're going to go and see today if we're going to see anything at all. 
Um, you know, we sort of just t- turned up in, in hope, um, you know, and things like that. It wasn't until we actually got on the tram to go to the track where we learnt that they had actually closed the gates to the to the general, not closed the event off yet, but they hadn't. They, they weren't letting people through the gates, and that's mm. where I started thinking, oh, this is something's going on here. Now we we thought maybe there might have been a chance they might have got through, you know, a bit of practice and things like that. Again, there was a lot of questions up in the air and, and things like that, and it wasn't. If if you were standing in the line, you didn't know what was going on unless you actually was keeping up to date with what was going on through social media. So, I mean, as, as you mentioned at the start there, Richard, you know, yeah, I did put my journalist hat on a few times. You know, I was straight on the phone watching the live press conference from Daniel Andrews, the, the Victorian Premier, where he broke the news that um, it would be closed to the general public, and so much so, you know, because my phone's obviously making noises, we're listening to it, that there was a few other punters that were all huddled around my phone trying to watch the same thing. So... Mm. You know, it wasn't, it, like I said, it came as a shock, I think, to a few people, probably because they weren't keeping up to date on the phone as it was happening in real time, basically. All right, boys. Well, we need to we need to broaden this discussion and actually talk about how this was managed. And, Brian, you feel free to put your, your journo hat on and join in on this. Um, yeah, we'll do. This is a, it was an unparalleled situation, and we know that. And from the moment that McLaren announced at 10.30 p.m. or so on Thursday night that one of their mechanics had contracted the COVID-19 virus and was going to be quarantined and then that the team would ultimately pull out. I think most of us knew that the event was going to be cancelled in some form, whether it was just Formula One not running or from a, an entire event perspective. But I, I want thoughts on, on first, the, the long, drawn-out process and what was essentially 12 hours between... McLaren saying they were out to a decision actually being made. Um, and and it's the first instinct we all had was one of anger, I think, because it took so long and there were so many uncertainties. And we went in a short space of time from, yes, it's all happening. Oh, no, wait, it's not. Yes, it is, but there'll be no people. And, and that, like you mentioned, Brian, was a strange one with um, with Daniel Andrews, the Premier, mentioning that. But there was no official communication from the race. So that was a strange situation. And then for a while there, Formula One was off, but everyone else was still on, supercars, Porsche, whatever it might be. And then ultimately the whole event was done and dusted. And I was home by midnight Friday night back in Adelaide. Um, Shebek, Star, we'll start with you. Um, you've worked in the Melbourne media especially for a long time. What were your initial reactions on how that was all playing out? Isn't it funny, uh, Dale, you lived through the Essendon Football Club disaster as I did. And at that time, Paul Little was the president of the Essendon yeah, Football Club. Indeed. He now becomes the, the president or the chairman of the Australian Grand Prix at their most difficult time. And pretty similar to the time at Essendon, communication was just an absolute nightmare. Now, I don't know whether that's due to instruction or not, but that 12 to 24 hours in regards to what was coming out of headquarters here in Melbourne was just a PR nightmare and will be used as an example in universities around the world as to how not to do PR for an event. Well, Tony, you're right, but I've, I've actually gone, I spent a lot of time this week trying to delve into things to just to try and find the sequence of what happened and who's responsible. And you'll have to bear with me here because I've even been into diving back into annual reports from the Grand Prix Corporation oh. just to see the financial side of this. So Busy week at work, this was is, it, Dale? This, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is, this is my read. 
Uh, when McLaren pulled out round about 9.30 or 10 o'clock on the Thursday night, uh, a team meet at the meeting at the FIA or Formula One called a meeting of the teams. At that point, Ferrari, Renault, McLaren were out, and I believe Alfa Romeo said they were out of the event. Um, that's heightened by the fact that we know that Vettel and Raikkonen left the country early on Friday morning on an Emirates flight to Dubai. Correct. Red Bull, uh, AlphaTauri and Racing Point were in. Williams and Haas, possibly Williams definitely, but Haas possibly abstained from the vote, and Mercedes had not cast a vote either. However, the rules stipulate that the, in the current situation, there must be 12 cars on the grid to form a Grand Prix. At that point, where Mercedes, when Toto Wolff went back to Germany to say, what are we going to do? And they said, we're out. They did not have 12 cars. So the FIA then took the decision that they cannot make the race. Yep. So we are blaming the Australian Grand Prix Corporation, but this is where I think we are being unjust in our blame. In 2018, uh, sales and sponsorship revenue for the Grand Prix Corporation, this is published, so I'm not making this up, was $42.4 million. In 2019, the same calculation of sales revenue, which is tickets and, and sponsorship revenue, was $46.1 million, an increase of nearly $4 million. Mm. We, as taxpayers in Victoria, underwrote the Grand Prix by $60 million in 2019, and the rumoured sanctioning fee is in the vicinity of $55 million. So if you do the calculations, if you say, OK, we're going to lose $60 million again if the event went ahead because the infrastructure costs are there mm. and we're going to have to pay the sanctioning fee, we are looking at a blowout of $100 million. Mm. Unacceptable to the taxpayer. However, if the Grand Prix Corporation never cancelled the event, which they did not they have a claim to say we're not paying the sanctioning fee. So guess what? They refund the money, $46.1 million on 2019 figures. They don't pay the sanctioning fee, which is $50 million. And Victoria, and I'll, I'll back this in, in June 30, will record a loss at the Grand Prix somewhere around $75 million and say, didn't we do a great job because it only cost us $15 million more? Yeah. So that's my read on it. Um, I'll state the claim that I think I'm pretty close on the numbers. But the reason that Daniel Andrews and the Grand Prix Corporation did not want to fire the shot, because if they fired the shot and said, this race is cancelled, F1 would have said, fine, you've cancelled it, have, hand over the sanctioning fee. Yeah. By, by not cancelling the race and by saying we have accepted the decision of the FIA and Formula One, um, we're, just, we're just administering what they said. They will have a massive claim to, to get a huge proportion of that sanctioning fee reduced. Yeah, look, I, I totally agree. And I, I, I think for the record, we're not apportioning blame anywhere here. Everyone's culpable in some way. I, I think if we're having a crack at the at the Grand Prix Corp, it, it's some of the communications around what happened that morning and the fact that, that perhaps it wasn't managed as well as it could have been, especially the Daniel Andrews... Yeah thing coming out and saying, oh, it's going to be run without spectators. Well, that that was that might have been a premier just going off on his own and, and freelancing because that was news to everybody. And that news, if it was indeed news, should have been communicated from the event. Sometimes it's tough to manage that. I, I, I think we all, as people in the sport, understand that a lot of the culpability here is around the machinations of Formula One and how that operates and the need for conformity amongst the teams and there's no surprise that that Williams and Mercedes uh, Williams and Haas 
withheld their votes because Haas would do whatever their engine supplier Ferrari wanted to do, and Williams would be the same yes. with Mercedes Benz. So the, it's the politics and the power play involved in F1 that caused a lot of this. I, I don't think we, any of us, will disagree with that. But I mean, Brian, there's a, there's still some questions to be asked though about the way this whole thing rolled out, and and maybe there's for Liberty Media who've only had F1 for a couple of years. Remember. Overall PR for Formula One still a new thing, isn't it? Because under Bernie, they had no PR whatsoever. It just was the ship that rolled on. So maybe there's lessons to be learned for them out of this as well. I mean, there was whole confusion throughout the course of the night, wasn't there? I mean, I, like I said at the beginning, I was one of those stupid ones that basically stayed up all night trying to follow the story and what was going on. And at about, I think it was almost midnight, Formula One released a statement saying, you know, our our, our concerns are, are with those that are affected by the virus and all that sort of stuff and, and blah, 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 blah. It was just a statement to put a statement out. It actually, you know, it didn't actually resolve anything whatsoever. It just created more questions that weren't actually answered. So that was frustrating. You had it about 2 o'clock in the morning. You had BBC reporting that the event was off. You had Sky Sports reporting that the, that the event was still on. And then that confusion just continued to reign throughout the early hours of the morning. And, and backing up Dale's you know, remarks, from what I've been reading throughout the course of the week anyway, it was basically, yeah, just that standoff of, well, we didn't want to you know, announce the, the closure of the event. No, we didn't want to announce the closure of the event. A lot of the talk was that they were waiting on Chase Carey to arrive in the country uh, mm. because he'd been over in Vietnam. Um, in crisis talks, you know, with with them about their Grand Prix, and he wasn't actually landing in Melbourne until 8:30 that morning. So they were waiting for him to get to the track and you know have his few meetings and things like that, which probably would have been close to the 10 o'clock mark. And shortly after that, um, the event was called, and then they held the the press conference shortly after. So, as I mean, you boys have already summed it up perfectly. You know, those numbers I think will are bang on and, and completely support why it took, you know, until an hour and 45 minutes before the opening practice session to call the event, which really is, is really not good enough when this the event was on shaky ground for two weeks. I think the other thing, guys, too, that must be considered, and uh, one thing that will irk the politicians no end, is the fact that I, I've got a feeling a lot of favours were called in regards to make sure that this Grand Prix at least got to the Friday, uh-huh. even though after that. I, I mean, the fact that they were able to get the Ferrari team out of Italy after it was closed down, I'm sure that was definitely a, uh, a favour called by a government to a government. Otherwise, it's, there's no way yeah. that they could have got out of uh, got out of Italy. Uh, it's so funny yeah. you say that, Tony, because I, I, I thought the exact same thing. Sorry to butt in on you, but no, how please. coincidental is it that the Australian government just so happened to put Italian um, bans on Italian travellers at 6pm on a Wednesday afternoon, just so happened to be when all the Italian personnel were at the track. You, know, you, arrived, look at yeah. the exact, you look at the amount of people that were blasting the government up until that Wednesday saying, why have you not closed the borders to, Itali- uh, to, to Italians yet? Nearly every other country in the world had but Australia. They knew what was going on, you know, and it, it, it's so coincidental. Mm. Yeah, no, I think uh, a lot of egg on a lot of faces, unfortunately, and it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. I'm catching up with Andrew Westacott a little bit later on, guys, and uh, you'll yeah you'll you'll hear an interesting story from him. Yeah, well, I mean, he's he's one of the more under pressure CEOs in the business at the moment, and that's saying a lot because there's some pretty serious under pressure CEOs yeah. in the world of sport right now. I suppose the question, and, and uh, we'll go to you with this, is. Should they even have had the event? Or 
should they have done a Gold Coast Indy 2009 <coughs> when A1GP pulled out a week from it? Should F1 have cut its, cut its losses, gone, we're not coming, and the GP cop put on a, a show over maybe three days with supercars, Carrera Cup, S5000, TCR, and gone on with life, or just cancelled the whole thing? Oh, I think there the was, the was just cause to say the circus shouldn't have come. Uh, the jumbo shouldn't have been loaded. I think that's absolutely right, Richard. And, you know, it, it, it was a sort of, well, look, we'll go and see how we go. That's not how you run a sporting event. Mm. I'm not sure under the, the uh, actually the act whether they could have done that. It's the same thing as, as uh, surfers where they have, there is a there is a clause in the act. But I t- at, at the 11th hour, um, for them to say, look, we're going to run the supercar event, uh, yes, as you say, over a couple of days, all the supports were in place. And the support categories this year, I thought, were particularly good. I thought... As a program, mm. it was as good as we've ever seen. Mm. Um, so, yes, I think that would have been... And, and, and I think the public probably would have said, yeah, we're, we're cool with that. Uh, yes, disappointment, yeah. of course. But, yes, I, I, I would err on the fact that the jumbo should, probably should never have been loaded. I don't see how that could have happened, though, guys, because let's, let's be 100% clear about this, that it was only cancelled due to COVID-19, coronavirus. If there was no coronavirus, we still run a Grand Prix. And everyone's happy. Would the supercars, would S5000, would TCR still have been allowed to run under the conditions that COVID-19 was around? Daniel Andrews's argument of no crowd wasn't based on the fact that Formula One were there. It was based on the fact that we were about to go into a, a lockdown situation of no more than 500 people gathered in the one area. So I don't reckon it would have gone ahead anyway, even if the Formula One cars hadn't have arrived. I still don't think we would have had anything other than the Thursday that we had. Well, yeah, but that was part of the mixed messaging that came out Friday morning, Shebex, and that for a while there, from a support category perspective, there was a chance that that was exactly what was going to happen. The gates. No, I totally agree. And the supports could have maybe run, but they still wouldn't have run without a crowd. No, there wouldn't have been a crowd. Yeah, no, no, the crowd, I agree, agree with that. It's whether they have an event. I think actually, you know, now that we we know a lot more about what's gone on, guys, the. uh, the, the the statement by Daniel Andrews um, uh, sort of reignited those horrible bushfires over the summer because it was absolutely incorrect. He knew the event wasn't going to go on, but again, he wasn't going to be the one who said that. So yeah. he would have he, his advisors would have known exactly what was going on because the government are a massive investor and a partner of F1 and FIA. He would have known at two a.m. in the morning what was happening. So it was a very promiscuous comment, I thought, uh, that he made. So, and we'll, we'll go around the horn with this one. Has Formula One done irreparable damage to itself by the way that this was managed? Can they come back next year, all will be forgiven, all is okay? Or are, do they have some bridge building to do to get this, get this show back on the road whenever we go back racing again? Formula One has had the ability for so many years to be able to get itself out of many, many, many situations. Bad racing or whatever it might be, this won't affect Formula One at all because, once again, there's a thing called COVID-19, which is the absolute blanket over this. Mm. And at the end of the day, that's all they have to say is, hey, it wasn't us. We were forced. It was this virus. Everything was shutting down. The fact we're not running in Bahrain, the fact we're not running in Vietnam, the fact that we're with uh, moving China as well, we're not going to be in Australia. Nothing we can do about it, guys. Not our fault. But we will have some racing for you at some point. We just don't know where it is. People will forgive them because they're not the only sport in the same situation. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Tony. I think if you look back to the US, uh, the Grand Prix, where six cars 
started the IndyCar, the, the Indianapolis round of the Formula One Grand Prix, and everyone else peeled off into pit lane because the tyres were in serious strife. Um, and Formula One was never going to be succeeding US again. It was never coming back. Go away. We don't want to see you. And yes, they've got a brilliant event at uh, Coda now in its you know fourth or fifth year. So yeah, I agree, Tone. I think it's it's this is a force majeure, and and you know we're all along for the ride at the moment. I think from my point of view is that um, I compare it to how the MotoGP have handled their events. They were very much on the front foot and cancelled their events straight straight in, straight out. In saying that's a little bit different sort of situation because the countries they were going to were single-handedly being affected by the coronavirus, not that hadn't really broken out yet here in Australia. So again, slightly different circumstances, but they definitely could have been more on the front foot and just said, look, hey, you know, there's a threat here. Let's not risk it like they have done. Let's not risk embarrassing ourselves in front of the whole world of trying to run this event and cancelling it at the last minute, which is exactly what happened. So I think they could have learned a little bit off what the FIM were doing in MotoGP and been on the front foot. The communication that the MotoGP have had with the media partners, with their fans, has been absolutely astounding. Yeah, a lot yeah. of the F1 journalists came out, you know, in the early hours when it was all when the whole confusion was running in the early hours of Friday morning. All the F1 journalists were saying, you know, please give us the communication team that's being portrayed in the MotoGP at the moment because we are getting nothing and we have no idea what's going on. Yep. So much so, people were turning up to the track on Friday morning, still not going, you know, not understanding what's going on. We're the MotoGP of, of three weeks ahead of what Formula One's been doing. So I don't believe it'll affect Formula One. I don't believe it'll affect the Australian Grand Prix. I mean, I'll still go there next year paying customer or what. But it's just put them, you know, to, to the to the non-fans of motorsport it has made them look a little bit embarrassing, I think, to, 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 to that, I guess, to that fraternity of people that, that don't follow the sport, don't know what it's all about. They'll look on Formula One now and go, poof, those those people that didn't have their act together and close their Grand Prix an hour before it started, pretty much. Yeah, do, do you know Brian, what? I, one thing I must say, Rich, if I just add, yeah. what I didn't understand about MotoGP is how the hell did they run Moto3 and Moto2? They were already there. Uh, they were in okay. the country. Well, yeah, but... Uh, Qatar so were the testing. Formula One teams. <laughs> yeah, but they, they were already in Qatar for testing, so they'd been there. There was no quarantine or anything like that, I think, mm, was, yeah, the, right. was the real drama. Uh, you're listening to On The Grid, Richard Crail, Tony Shebecki, Dale Rogers, and our special guest, Brian Vanderwacker, unpicking the drama of the Australian Grand Prix last weekend, and there sure was a whole heap of that. Um, I suppose broad chat now, boys. Um, we might be fishing for content for the next couple of weeks because <laughs> there, there might not be a whole lot of motor racing on anywhere around the world. The US is shut down until late May. Europe's about the same. Australia probably going in that same direction. Um, l- let's just try and spitball some some big picture stuff here. What does this mean? What what is it? What is the outcome for motorsport in particular when f- eventually we fire up? our engines at some point and and at this point we're all going well it might be june but then again it might not i mean can we predict what's going to happen in the intervening couple of months tony well i can i can tell you that on the grid will be running the best of and some fantastic (laughs) (laughs) oh my god you're right the content's going to be tough uh for for all of us but yeah we can't predict we can't predict anything and uh no one because there is no clear finish date to this thing. I mean, while people have still got it, people are going to be shut down. And, and as you know, I work three days a week at the school here in Melbourne. And the word I'm hearing is the reason they can't shut, the reason they won't shut down the schools here in, in Australia is because once they do, the schools will be shut for possibly six months. 
just to the fact that they can't reopen the schools mm. while people still have this because there's still a chance that so we just don't know we've been told now that uh community football and cricket and uh, netball and the like is all to be shut down until the end of may so that's just in, you know just in your local suburbs they're not playing sport worldwide is just in an absolute shutdown everything is theaters shut down pubs are being shut down in the uk and uh, and around people are being told not to go to pubs in ireland which i don't know how the hell happens when that uh st patrick's day tomorrow i don't know what the hell's going to happen there but uh yeah it's just a weird one there is no finish date uh it's i don't know how we're going to do it i can tell you though that the uh amrs which is the australian motor racing series here in australia are still running their events Why on april the 4th and 5th at warwick no, farm happen. at warwick farm warwick park well at it the moment i've been at the moment, I've got an email that says it will. Nah. It just won't go ahead with crowds. So we'll wait and see. No, nah, not a chance. I, I'd bet nah. what little money I've got left on uh, after this to say that that's not going to happen. It's just going to be a, a blanket pause. And, and this is part of the problem now that um, if you run now, you look irresponsible because everything else is shut down. Yep. Um, yep. And this is the problem that the AFL and the NRL over here are facing. And, and you know, by the time this goes to air... We may know more about that. Um, it's all uh, it's all doom and gloom, but we'll try and add some lightness. Uh, one thing I noticed, boys, that that's a bit of a faux pas is when you're celebrating an anniversary for your event, um, don't put that year's date on it because what no. th- th- this was the 25th Australian Grand Prix. Now next year's race will still be the 25th Australian Grand Prix because the 25th this year didn't happen. Unfortunately, the Australian Grand Prix Corporation put 2020 on every single little bit of merchandise that they produced promoting the fact that it was the 25th Australian Grand Prix. So those people who on Thursday got in early and bought a cap or a T-shirt or a program for $400,000 with the 25th anniversary Australian Grand Prix uh, or 25th race uh, sign on it, it's all redundant. But the worst thing is the Grand Prix Corp can't recycle that for next year. It's all going to be pulped, and they're going to have to start again. So no, just... I, I believe there's a whole new industry starting up in Melbourne. Uh, all all the little people used to make clothes and caps and things are all back at work, yep. albeit with masks on, and they are unstitching yeah. the, the, <laughs> the twenty and making it into a one. And I reckon they're just going to cream it. They can sell it twice. But to the other point, Rich, I tell you one of the things that I, I think is a really interesting thing to come out of this is that when you do contracts with, with teams and series as a, as, a, as a partner, you actually contract for a number of things to happen. Mm. Um, now, in, in, let's talk about supercars, for instance. You may, you may is in your contract as a, as a partner, say that, uh, yes, you, you, are, you are contracting the team to present their team at... 14 events during the year. And I've seen contracts that state the number of events. Um, so commercially, there may well be um, some real issues for teams moving forward at all levels, not just supercars. And also, of course, broadcast rights. Um, mm-hmm. What happens there? They have yeah. been contracted to produce and telecast a number of events. So what happens if those events don't take place? Mm. So... I think the I think the industry and the, I'm only talking about the industry we work in, but the industry itself um, is going to take a financial hit, not just from gates and things, but there will be commercial deals on the table that will be questioned by partners and media partners and sponsors and drivers, all sorts of things, to say, 
we're not paying you that money because you are not delivering the contract. So there's a, there's a lot of things to go on here. But Tony, unlike you, I'm a, I'm an eternal optimist, and I'm I'm banking that on June the 30th, when I've got to put my tax return in, it will be a lot less this year. Yeah. But you'll all be over Rover. Right well, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Can we just say too, guys, and this is off motorsport, but a very interesting decision just happened an hour ago uh, as we record this show here in Australia, is that the AFL Players Association has rejected the AFL's decision to shorten its season to 17 rounds. Now, this is the actual people who partake in the sport now putting the, you know, slap in the face of of the sport and the organisers and saying, we don't want to do what you want us to do. This has massive implications well, as to how that might look down the track as well. Uh, I think there's a few things to come with this because you look at world sport at the moment and you look at the amount of things that have been called off. You look at the English Premier League, you look at the NBA, um, you know, I mean, obviously motorsport, NASCAR and things like that, the Masters, golf, everything's being postponed all around the world. The only sport that is continuing in the entire world at the moment is in Australia. So, again, yeah. are we on the front foot? Are we not on the front foot? What's going on here? We're so disconnected, I think, from the rest of the world at the moment as to what's going on. And everyone's saying, if we don't put serious you know, restrictions in place, we're going to get very out of control with this virus here in Australia. It's a very good point that you make there, I think, Shebex, because I, from my understanding, again, we're on the back foot compared to what the rest of the world is doing at the moment with all these cancellations. Mm. All right, boys, uh, we could talk about this all day, and quite frankly, I'd rather not, because uh, I'm over <laughs> it, and uh, I need a holiday. So we'll wrap it up there. Uh, Brian, firstly, to you, thanks for joining us, mate. We really appreciate it. We appreciate that insight from what it was like um, being a punter and, and being on the other side of the news feed last weekend. So uh, all the best, mate. Uh, I don't know what you're going to be reporting on at Fox Sports yeah. uh, News over the next couple of months, but uh, I'm sure there'll be something to no. talk about. Uh, that's exactly, yeah, look, I mean, we don't even know ourselves. I think our whole rosters are changing the moment because, yep, quite literally there's nothing to report on. I tell you what everyone should get involved in and what could actually really take off the mode in the world of motorsport is online sim racing. Imagine a couple oh, of supercar yes. drivers yep. or a couple of Formula 1 drivers all in a lobby. How good would that be? Yeah, I, I tell you what, you get a fair few viewers in that and we might even be able to race ourselves. I uh, have some information that I, I reckon that's going to be, uh, that's going to happen. I think it's a given at some respect. Um, Dale and Shebex, thank you, boys. Appreciate your time, as always. Thanks, thank Richard you, and Crow. Tony. Great to talk, and hopefully we can... Uh, I can drag up some uh, videos and things of my MG racing if you want to put something to wear next week. <laughs> so that we'll different. find something. Don't worry. Actually, no, no, in all seriousness, Dale, how good's that marble video that's going around at the moment? <laughs> yeah, fantastic, isn't it? It's awesome. <laughs> We're not that desperate uh, on the marbles. Oh, it gives me great pleasure to say... G'day to Andrew Westacott, the CEO of the Australian Grand Prix, and what a massive few days it's been for him. Andrew, welcome to On The Grid. G'day, Shebex. Great to be on the grid once again. It's fantastic to have you on, mate. Uh, uh, To say it's been probably one of the biggest weeks of your commercial life would be an understatement? Yeah, um, there was a lot of curveballs thrown at us, and, um, you know, you've got to deal with each of those situations in real time, making the right decision that sort of takes into account um, commercial realities, the, the work we have with our government partners who are the key sponsors of the event for the, um, the, the Australian Grand Prix Corporation and most importantly for the fans and, um, and the safety of fans and participants. So there's a lot of inputs and they don't always pan out exactly the same way 
that you think they're going to pan out. But um, at the end of the day, Shebex, I, I woke up the following morning and knew that the, the right decision had been made. Andrew, we'll get into the decision shortly and we'll talk about that. Uh, from you, though, as, a, as a, a CEO of a corporation, this is your 10th year in the Australian Grand Prix. I, I think I safely say that it has been the biggest week of your, uh, your, your career with the Australian Grand Prix. How much of that experience of the past did you have to draw on? And did you yourself have any mentors that you had to draw on to try and help you and, and guide the ship through this really rocky time? Well, experience counts for a lot. There's no doubt about that. And um, whether they were the experiences I'd had in in previous lives or at the Grand Prix Corporation when I became CEO in 2010, working with Ron Walker and then John Harden and now with with Paul Little. But I think one of the key things was to have in the trenches the whole time an absolutely superb team of uh, my leadership team at the Grand Prix Corporation and everyone because... You know, yeah, there was decisions had to be made, but um, you know, where there's a lot of battles. Not, they're not battles, but a lot of considerations across a lot of fronts going into wee hours of, of the morning. So, yeah, you draw on your experience, but you also draw on the the resources and and the team stood up, and they should be very proud of what they did, even though we didn't deliver the ultimate thing, which was a which is a Grand Prix event at four ten on the Sunday. A lot of talk about whether the Grand Prix should have, whether the Formula One car should have even arrived in the situation at the time, whether we should have even got to the Friday point of having to cancel it. Well, let's go back to there and, and, and I suppose the start and the, the cars and the equipment and, and the infrastructure really starts to arrive from overseas at three weeks. I suppose at that point and even heading into the few days into the Grand Prix, the fact that Melbourne had run a successful World Cup women's final with 86,000 people, even though there was the that sort of uh, haze in the future as to things may change, things looked still pretty good up until about the Tuesday or the Wednesday, didn't they? Oh, in fact, they they were looking good up until Thursday because unlike um, a lot of Grands Prix around the world, we're a four-day event and so we actually had our support categories of, of supercars, S5000, TCR and Porsche Carrera Cup all on track along with lots of activities off track and you know for a temporary circuit we started building the venue in mid-January and yes there were things that happened there's always things that are happening around the place but um, you know we were probably separated in Australia from that we still are in a different scenario and it was only five days before the Thursday gate opening that there was 86,000 at the MCG and it was a different world so if timing had have been in our favour a week earlier, we would have been running the events and it would have been history and so on a, a week later and we would have made earlier calls. Um, we were right on the cusp and therefore the calls were being made um, in periods of you know, six hours, two hours, one hour, um, up to 12 hours and sometimes 24 hours. We get to Thursday and we find out that a McLaren team member has contracted COVID-19 at that point in time, to to use the uh, the well-oiled phrase of many before us, did the shit hit the fan? Well, you know, you, you go through these events and you always look at the scenarios and um, one of the things that we were using to guide those scenarios was advice from the Chief Health Officer of the Victorian Government and then they nationally feed up to... Uh, a group of their cohorts at a federal level and when it comes to decisions about um, border force for instance they they um, they go into the national security committee which is chaired by the prime minister 
So we knew that we always had to deal with the decisions based on, on medical fact and medical science. And when a person from McLaren tested positive, what that meant was that there was going to be a period of isolation for the people they'd been in direct contact with. And at that time, we didn't know whether that was one individual who'd come to the circuit, seen a doctor because they had a sniffle or, as it turned out, COVID-19, um, and gone away, or whether they'd been intrinsic in the team. And it turns out they were um, intrinsic in the garage. And then that um, prompted McLaren and Zach Brown and the team to say that they're going to have to withdraw from the, the Formula One event. Andrew, how much contact did you have with Formula One and the Formula One teams through the Thursday evening and the conversations were happening uh, behind closed doors at Crown Casino by the teams working out whether they were going to be a part of it or not? Well, you know, um, we the thing about the Grand, Australian Grand Prix Corporation and our Melbourne event is we've had an unbelievable partnership with Formula One since 1996 in the early days with, with Ron Walker, Jeff Kennett and, and Bernie and then through successive CEOs and chairs and, and now of late with um, with Chase Perry, Paul Little and myself. And um, the, the conversation and, and the preparation into an event like this is is absolutely regular because it's a partnership and we can't do it without them and, and vice versa. So it was... You know, daily conversations, and when they come onto the ground and they're sharing the same offices in the same executive area of, of Pit Building One, um, we're dealing with them hourly. And then, as it uh, came to the crunch on the Thursday night, we're in meeting rooms together. And then there were the meetings that occurred at Crown because the team principals are there, and, and they had those with Formula One personnel led by, I think, it was Ross Braun. Mm, exactly. We get to Friday morning, and that. It was just on another level, I think, for everybody in regards to information was coming out across our TV screens, across our radio stations, that the Formula One Grand Prix was going to be cancelled due to meetings. No one seemed to really know, though. Then it looked like it was going to be on, and then it was going to be off. Then we had the Premier, who... I'm not sure whether he blindsided you guys or not, but the Premier making the statement that the Grand Prix can run, but they'll be running behind closed doors, otherwise they won't run at all. And then, of course, around about 10 o'clock the official word came through. It was an amazing four or five hours. Tell us how much of a head spin was that four or five hour period for you and your team? Well, the um, there were a few things that um, took us by surprise and, and some of those were retrospective. So they don't necessarily cloud you making the right decisions. I mean, we did not know that, uh, for instance, Sebastian Vettel and um, Kimi Raikkonen were on a plane, but the team's... <laughs> had determined that. Now, when decisions get made and discussed um, during the middle of the night, um, you've got to also go through processes, and those processes need to be finalised, um, you know, when you've got all the right people available and on air. And, uh, you know, it just so happened that the timing of, you know, middle of the night because of, of test results, Europe on their daytime, um, people, and we, those people, you know, our key stakeholders needing to be, the Minister for Sport and also the Premier and others, and also needing to talk to Formula One, re- remembering also that Chase Carey's on a on a plane coming from Vietnam at this particular point in time. So the other input, and we said this from day one, and it was a vitally important piece of information, is the advice of the Chief Health Officers and the emerging and ever-rapidly changing in world of COVID-19 and, and what this virus is doing. And all those inputs come together from about, you know, 
2.30 in the morning through to about 7, 8, 9 and 10. And the announcement um, of the cancellation of the Grand Prix was made at about 10.07. And we had a press conference at 11.45 a.m. Chebex, the thing that I was um, uh, most saddened by was disappointing the fans who were waiting at the gates. But there was, unfortunately, that was just one of those sad occurrences of timing. And um, I apologise if any of them are listening to your podcast or our podcast now. I say sorry for unintentionally um, leaving you in the lurch, but it was one of those things that um, timing needed to be stepped through. And Andrew, I suppose if there is to be any major criticism of what happened in that that morning period on Friday, uh, communication would have to seem to be the biggest thing. The, the lack of, I suppose, the fact that there was so much speculation out in the in the media of as to whether the Grand Prix was going to go on, but there was no official word. If you had your time again, would you look at what happened in that period and change it? Well, I think it comes down to you, you, you've, you've lived and breathed the, the media for, for many a year. Mm. And there was no, there's no discussion other than the very, very clear statements put out by the Australian Grand Prix Corporation and Formula One. And, and the rest of it was media speculation or discussions with third parties that led to assumptions being made. And and that's what caused a lot of the confusion. When I arrived at the circuit after leaving there at about you know, 2.30 in the morning and I arrived in just before 7, there were news services um, everywhere. Now, they didn't get that information from Formula One or the AGPC, but that's the nature of the news cycle these days. So, look, um, that's uh, that was un- unintentionally an outcome of it, but I can assure you, when we got all the people together and needed to go through the right processes, it's something very, very complex of, you know, deciding to be able to not stage a Grand Prix for health and safety reasons and then communicating people and making sure stakeholders are involved. Um, I can assure people that it happened in a, in a very, very quick manner, albeit maybe a frustrating for, manner for them if they were looking from the out, outside. Uh, Paul Little, Jewish, he's, <laughs> he's uh, world in sport has been a tough one over a few years. Of course, he was uh, president of Essendon at the time through that saga and and now what had happened here. The, did he uh, have an, a, that advantage, I suppose, of being at Essendon at that time? Did that help you guys? Was he able to help you guys in regards to leadership of uh, of the team in a crisis? Well... I'm sure it did. I mean, we didn't uh, we didn't talk about specifically Essendon, but Paul's a, a very astute businessman. He's um, he's the chair of the Grand Prix Corporation for a reason, and uh, he was there with us uh, every step of the way. So, along with Paul, myself, um, key members of our leadership team, the advice and directions we were getting for the um, from the chief health officer, and then also the um, the consultation very regularly with key personnel at Formula One. You know, this decision was made in the right manner with all the right steps and for the right reasons. And that was the safety of the fans, the safety of the participants, and to ensure at the end of the day in something that is unprecedented for you know decades, maybe half a century, um, that we made the right decision. And waking up the following morning, Shebex, I, I knew it was the right decision, albeit one that probably disappointed some people yeah. um, on the morning. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, Andrew, of course, we uh, hear a bit of speculation that the possibility that we would love to run the 2020 Australian Grand Prix again if we 
got the opportunity there and there may be that chance to do it down the track. Is that a realistic uh, thing that could happen? Well, I've learned to never say never in the world of Formula One and um, one of the things that this uh, um, COVID-19 virus is doing is decimating you know, the tourism industry and, and the events industry in, in Melbourne and I'm sure it's doing nationally and across the globe and so we've got to be open-minded about what's going to happen in the future. We haven't made any decisions because what we're doing at the moment is working with our suppliers and event partners to make sure that some of those who are doing it tough at the moment um, can be assisted in bumping out and um, exiting this year's Grand Prix. But, you know, we'll keep an open mind on it. I think probably more likely it's going to be the 25th race in um, March next year. But equally, we'll keep an open mind and always look at it. And that was referred to by... Paul Little and Chase Perry at the uh, the press conference on Friday morning. So here's my thought about how you can do it. Uh, as COVID nineteen okay. is pushing everything yep. back, and and the the Formula One season may not start until June or July this year. Is there a possibility that we could have the Australian Grand Prix as the final Grand Prix of 2020, the week before the first Grand Prix of 2021, and run two Grand Prix in a week at the same track? Well, I tell you what, I haven't heard that one, but I love you. I love your thinking and. Uh, that would be a great uh, bonus for, you know, not only the conclusion because the, the teams did love going to Adelaide and they do love coming to Melbourne. So um, if that comes up, I'm sure uh, the Premier, the Minister, um, Paul Little, myself and the board of the Grand Prix Corporation would uh, have a, a red-hot go at looking at that one. I well, haven't heard it before, but I like it. Oh, well, if it does come up and it was my idea, a uh, corporate ticket, that should suffice, I would have thought, Andrew. <laughs> Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll check you for media accreditation. How's that? All right, we'll, we'll settle for that. Uh, before <laughs> I let you go, Andrew, and I really do appreciate your time. Thank you so much uh, for your, your honesty as well. Uh, MotoGP, of course, uh, struggling as well, like every other sport in the world in regards to having to cancel events and the like. Is it full steam ahead for you guys planning Phillip Island in October, or is there a little bit of trepidation happening there? No, it's... It's, I, I use the, the, the phrase all systems go in the lead up to Formula One and I don't regret that because as event organisers you've still got to go out and keep going and keep going and keep going until something happens and uh, what, I, what, I do, what I do say and I feel very, very um, uh, saddened from our friends at, at Dorna and, and the MotoGP world for the interruption to their season and not only the, the first four races but what it's going to do is the rest of the calendar and equally for the team at Formula One um, these are people's livelihoods, there's big industries associated with them and the turmoil that they're having to face is no different to the turmoil everyone else is facing but it's uh, on a magnified scale and um, you know they're thinking of us but I'm equally thinking of all of them um, both the Dorna, the Dorna team in, in Barcelona and Madrid as well as the uh, Formula One team in the UK. As I said, Andrew, really do appreciate your time. Thank you so much for it. I uh, look forward to keeping in touch with you, especially as we get closer to the MotoGP. We'll have a chat about that down the track. Anytime, Shebex. Great to talk. Andrew Westacott joining us here, the CEO of the Australian Grand Prix Corporation. Well, there you have it. Another episode of On the Grid wrapped up and locked in the can. Thanks for joining us again with thanks to theracetalk.com. This program is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.